Thanks for tuning into the Life in the Front Office podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kirschman. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And thanks to Suja Organic for their support. Remember, you can get 15% off any one-time pack on shop.sujajuice.com with the code LIFO, L-I-F-O. And enjoy today's episode. Welcome to today's episode on the Life in the Front Office podcast presented by Suja Organic. Excited to have my guest here in David Japulo uh, with Tiger Tail Advisory and excited to talk to him about his journey in the sports business world, uh, about finding your niche and much, much more. So nonetheless, David, welcome. We'll get into kind of where your journey has GPS around the globe. Uh, you know, not many can say that. Uh, as, as you know, a lot have ping pong around the country, but you've been, you've been global. Thanks for having me, Jake. Really looking forward to our discussion. Yes, I've been abroad for about 15 years and now back in the U.S. So in terms of where you started your career, and, and we'll get into what Tiger Tail Advisory is, but in terms of starting your career and your GPS, um, how did you get into sports? What, what was your aha moment of this is what I want to do for, for a living? Well, I grew up loving like everybody else. And, um, when I was bartending and building artificial putting greens and not really going anywhere in my career, I decided to go back to graduate school for a sports management degree at George Washington university. And um, I started and two weeks later, I was lucky enough to apply for a job through one of my professors at SFX Sports. And there were 1,100. These are back in the days of monster.com where you would submit your resume and they had 1,100. And luckily my professor put mine on top and um, I got an interview and ended up getting a job two weeks into my graduate program. So then I was juggling juggling work, full-time work, night school, everything else. So that's how I jumped into the industry is mainly because I wasn't really doing anything. <laughs> most most people, when they go into grad school, they're like, all right, I got a year, two years, whatever it is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure it out at the end. No, you're like two weeks in, I got to get a job. Yeah, it worked out. It was really, it was really a blessing and worked out really well, but it, uh, it made me, it was great because it put grad school into perspective. I wasn't there to get grades. I was there to learn. I was there to, I didn't take notes. I didn't worry about tests. I knew I had a job. And so I went, I went into that and I just went in and kind of soaked everything in in grad school and really enjoyed the experience. What's one thing you got out of that experience that you don't think you would have gotten had you not got that job? Well, I was able to bring real life experiences into the classroom. So it was great, not only for the class and the professors, but for me, I could bounce ideas and legitimate ideas off my professors versus the theoretical ideas and concepts. And so again, it helped me sort of just have a broader perspective instead of the textbook perspective. You mentioned you were abroad for 15 years, and, and a lot of people listening would go, I want to work abroad. Uh, I want to work in soccer. I don't know, right? How did you do it? Where did you start? Um, what got you abroad and, and what made you stay for so long, too? It was mostly just personal interest. My wife and I wanted to go abroad and have that experience. Um, I would say there was a little bit of professional 
future vision in that I was in the naming rights business and we saw these margins shrinking and shrinking. Every time we would go in for a pitch, our take of uh, percentage commission was going down and down. So it was extremely competitive in the US. And so my wife and I wanted to go abroad, do the experience, but also open up new doors professionally. And so we took a month, it was November, 2007. And we took a month and just traveled around about eight different countries across Europe and just banged on doors and said, can we have a chat? And uh, luckily I was, a, I was lucky. I had a couple different offers coming out of that trip and uh, selected Liverpool Football Club. So you go to Liverpool and in terms of just immersing yourself in a very different experience, um, what was what was the first couple months like? And then, you know, obviously the years after that, but um, just going into a new, not only a new country, uh, new living lifestyle, new culture. I mean, what is what is that like to transition into a different job in that setting versus going from one team to another in a market or, or whatever the case might be? It was eye opening. It does take time. Um, it was, I'm from Pittsburgh and Liverpool is another blue collar, tough town. And so that adaptation wasn't so tough, but it was really interesting learning, you know, everybody that goes to the UK usually ends up in London <laughs> and that's a big city experience. Liverpool is a different one. So both culturally, um, you learn to adapt, but then professionally, I got to say, I was fortunate with Liverpool in the sense that doors open you know it's a big club it's a big international club and people will at least take those phone calls from you whether it's a service that they want to provide to the club whether it's a sponsorship sale whatever it may be those doors open and so it was great it was a great entree into international sports it opened a lot of contacts um it was great from the sponsorship perspective um, but it was a learning experience. And I think it ultimately takes at least 18 months to two years to kind of really get your feet grounded. And I was there about that period and then ended up switching right after to go to Switzerland. But it was a good grounding experience, um, kind of puts you back more into a humble mode <laughs> because you don't know everything and uh, you're, you're learning that along the way and so you're learning so much that you're soaking everything in digesting everything but still out doing your job if you're a sponsorship sales specialist you got to go do that job and you need to deliver on that so it's about an 18 to two two year 18 month to two year experience i think to really understand where you are and then you went from there to kind of the agency side of things from a naming rights perspective, right? And, and kind of finding your niche uh, in that part of the world. Yeah. So from, I had done a deal with Liverpool with Infront Sports and Media there out of Switzerland and uh, discussion snowballed with them. And there was a role that was pretty diverse. You're talking about our niche, but I had about as wide of a, a position as you can have it in front. Um, it was almost like NBA Teambo, where we were looking at best practices for sponsorship sales, for meteorite sales, for activations, to structuring our deals with rights holders. And our job was best practices across our portfolio of rights. And so it was really, really a wide breadth of everything, bringing everything in. Um, 
ultimately my role developed into running the global sponsorship team, um, running the brand consulting, business intelligence, which is proving out ROI and return on investment in sports. And then a, a fourth sector was our innovation lab and determining which new technologies were going to be adaptable and commercial and things that you can commercialize in sports. So it was pretty broad in scope. Yeah. So you go broad, right, to the ultimately kind of find your niche in the business. And I think that's that's an important piece to discuss is like you don't have to focus on one very, very specific thing in order to be really good at it and kind of follow that path. It's, hey, go broad, figure out what you're good at within that broad scope uh, and and have the other perspectives, the other experiences, and then kind of hone in on, you know, one specific area. Um, when you think about your experience there, though, uh, best practices is always an interesting thing, right? Because it's like, well, best practice to who, right? And, uh, and you know, you're kind of always talking to different people, different perspectives, different markets. Uh, you're, you know, then on the, the convincing end, if you're trying to tell somebody that XYZ is a best practice, well, why should I do that, right? Resistance to change and 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 all those sorts of things. What are some of the things you learned in that best practice world that then apply once you get into, um, you know, the nitty gritty on on these deals and the details and so on and so forth? Well, it was interesting because, as you say, the perspective of best practice is this our best practice as an agency, <laughs> you know, and making sure that we generate the most revenue. Is it best practice for the rights holders that we're partnered with? Is it best practices for the fans? Is it best practices for the commercial partners, for the broadcasters and the media rights? And I would say from an agency perspective, you kind of have to have that level mix of, are we generating the most revenue for our company, but also delivering those things if you have long-term. We were fortunate. We had a lot of 10-year, 12-year relationships with our rights holders. So we could look at it long-term and we could generate best practices, not how much are we maximizing our revenue over the next year or two. So that's a great point that you made is whose best practice is that? What I found um, a lot of trial and error and the trial and error was, do we have something from our Chinese Basketball Association League that translated to curling? <laughs> and maybe, maybe not, but what, what we found was there are fan engagement opportunities that do translate. There are technologies that go across those sports. Um, and so that best practices wasn't how do we make downhill skiing and just do that for um, the next winter sport. It really spread across. I, I remember I went to a UFC fight in the UK just to see how they were presenting their their event night and where can we take that does that go to the chinese basketball association does it go to the ice hockey world championships and and finding those things so it was really we we did a good job i believe our team of looking outside of our personal scope finding what was best not only within our portfolio and then bringing it back but also going to those um the the biggest events around the world so you were in Switzerland for a while, and then 
Would, did you look at a map and just kind of put your finger on, on Arizona and go, I'm coming here? How, how, does, <laughs> how does that work? Well, I, did, I decided to make the jump to entrepreneurial life. And that's when we decided to open Tiger Tail Advisory. And I knew we were going to come back to the U.S. My partner, Ryan Peck, uh, he's based here. He was based in Chicago. He went to Arizona State. And so we were looking. My My path was... Pittsburgh, DC, Chicago, Liverpool, Zurich. I didn't have too much sunshine in my life. So, so sunshine was the number one priority. And so looked at markets like Denver and San Diego and Phoenix, Scottsdale, and um, went and looked at lifestyle and everything associated with that and good airports for transportation to travel, et cetera. And Ryan uh, also was open being an ASU grad. He said, yeah, I'd go back to Phoenix. So um, with Ryan, with recruitment from friends like AJ Maestas at Navigate and uh, a few other friends in town, we decided on Phoenix. Well, we're, I'm, I'm glad that I was able to meet you here out on the pickleball courts. And, uh, you know, it's, it's always a good time on the hiking trails, but I think one of the the neat things that you just mentioned, right, is um, you weren't necessarily, you know, look, as an entrepreneur, you can live wherever, right? But you're also thinking about lifestyle, family, and just and just what else encompasses in your life as as you're, you know, going throughout your your journey and your GPS. Um, when you think about the advice that you give to others, if it's, hey, David, I'm thinking about going international, what should I consider, right? Like, what are those things as someone who's in the U.S. who's thinking, hey, I want to go take a European soccer job or, or a brand job in, in Europe or, or um, U.K. or wherever? Like, what, what are the things that they need to consider and actually truly think about that they may not be thinking about? There's a few things. One is you need to get the right visa. So how do you get that process? How do you get in there? To get a visa, normally you have to have a skill that nobody else from that country can do. Um, so what are your avenues to do that? It's look at some of the rights holders or owners that are from the U.S. And it's much easier for them to say, no, I need somebody from my organization to go here. So you can look at, uh, you know, all the football club owners that are American and kind of get on their <laughs> get on their package going over there. The other thing is it goes back to what we were discussing earlier is the niche. You need to have a niche to get in there. Um, I love having the broad experience because I'm curious about learning all these different areas of the sports and the business. And uh, most people are but you need to have a reason why they're going to hire you. You have to be the best at something. Um, I remember when I was interviewing, you know, I had a naming rights background and there was no naming rights really in Europe at the time. And I had on my CV resume, uh, seven steps to naming rights sales. And I didn't do that intentionally, but I found out everybody was asking me, what are those seven steps? Could have been 14, could have been two steps, didn't matter. But people were interested. What are those seven steps? Like it was a magical secret. It's almost like clickbait on the internet. I didn't mean it for it to be at that time, but it, it worked because it created discussion, allowed me to talk about something that I was an expert on that most people in Europe were not. And so I think you do have to find your niche. What are you best at? 
and you need to put that in there. But then there's the logistics of visas and travel and things like that. So one is your skill and two are the logistics. Well, and, and you talk about the naming rights piece and your seven steps and, and selling that in, right, as well of like having your pitch to those people of why you, right, as opposed to anybody else. I mean, hey, look, there's plenty of people who've closed a naming rights deal uh, aside from yourself, right? And so why you over somebody else uh, and why, you know, that organization specifically as well is an interesting story that you've got to come up with too, right? Yeah, and it's not, I just love football or I'm a Premier League fan. <laughs> you know, and I hear that a lot of it from, from younger people in the industry. You need to say why you want to be in that part of the business. You, you can bring this to the business. You can make it more international. You can be the best salesperson. You can be the best activation. You can raise the most money for their charity, whatever it may be. And as you've worked with brands, properties in the U.S. and both abroad, what's the biggest difference? Is it, is it culture? Is it the sport itself? Um, the, and, and kind of the sport, the role that that sport has in culture, right? Like soccer's role in culture is very different in Europe than it is in the U.S. Now it's changing, right? But it's still very different in the sense that they don't have, you know, the NBA or the NFL, et cetera. I'd say I'll keep this to the business side of things. I mean, I think the biggest difference mainly is that you're dealing with so many different countries, so many different cultures, so many languages, et cetera. Well, not only just football, but rugby and cricket and cycling and everything else outside of the American sports, that it becomes um, it's challenging because if you're going to a Polish company, how are they going to communicate if, they, if they're only doing it in Polish? And so those brand values don't translate that easily. So from a business perspective on sponsorship, on media rights, on fan activation and engagement and things like that, it gets challenging when you're talking about so many different cultures and languages and you have to balance that. How do you do that? And now the fallback is English. Um, but that's why even on global football, you know, UK and premier league, not only because it's a great league and there's great talent and et cetera, but they have the advantage of being English as their native language versus the Bundesliga or Serie A, you know, it makes a huge difference that they can communicate with the world pretty easily. Yeah. Your LinkedIn reach out, I would imagine, are you, are you Google translating and then, and then copying and pasting in? And what are you doing? Google Translate has gotten a lot better over the past 15 years. Um, I got to say, because people used to make fun of it because I used Google Translate a lot. Um, but English is, from a business perspective, mainly the language everywhere. However, having those other languages is, is extremely helpful, and they're impressed when you do. Unfortunately, I do not. <laughs> well, I was going to say, that it's, it's the... Culture appreciation, right? When you tr when you can at least try to speak the language, uh, there there's an extra, we'll call it level of of a pre you know just appreciation and effort that uh, can kind of go back and forth. Um, you see that on the player side, right? Be being able to speak different languages uh, with, with players. But um, as we start to wrap up the episode, one of the interesting things I want to get into is kind of the entrepreneurial side and what some of the challenges are there, right? And and going from a team to an agency to then doing it on your own. And um, for someone who's thinking about, hey, I, 
I could do this on my own or, you know, whatever the case might be, what are the biggest challenges you've faced thus far? And what are the other aspects of entrepreneurialism that you've enjoyed uh, and maybe surprised you as you've kind of gotten started? Few questions in there. Oh yeah, loaded. <laughs> we, we started Tiger Tail because of the challenges we've seen that uh, brands, rights holders, and investors make when they go abroad, and whether it's U.S. going internationally or internationally coming into the U.S., we see the same mistakes over and over and over. You can go and Google any of the brand mistakes in translation. And, you know, you'll see McDonald's mistakes and Coca-Cola, the biggest and greatest companies in the world, making those mistakes when they go into new markets. Well, we look at it from the sports marketing perspective, and this was exciting. So it goes back to the niche that we're talking about. We are broad. We're helping brands. We're helping rights holders. We're helping investors. We're doing events. So we're broad for being a small advisory firm, but our niche is entering, gaining traction in new markets. And um, it's a nice niche that we've just seen too many mistakes happen over and over. So we want to help those three uh, verticals get into new markets effectively and efficiently because they are spending so much time, so many resources, and they're often losing credibility when they go in because it takes so long to get their feet under them. So that's why we created it. For me, the entrepreneurial um, journey is pretty exciting. Um, the thing that I love most is not sitting in meetings, meeting, meeting, meeting. By far my favorite thing. Every minute that I spend working, I am working on something specific to help our clients, to help grow the business. Um, the downside of that, the other behind the scenes admin stuff, when my computer goes down, it's not fun to have to deal with it. You don't have, you don't have IT to help you. That's not, no. a <laughs> it's, it's, that is a royal pain. Yeah. You gotta go, you gotta go uh, buy a couple more hats, write IT on one of them, put that on and try and fix your computer. Maybe it'll make it smarter. Right. Um, when you talk about brands, properties, what going into different markets and again, without giving all your secrets away, um, what is one, like for someone who's like, well, what mistakes are people making going into different markets or how, like, what does that even look like? Um, and, and you're talking about expansion, but also brands entering in different, into different markets that they've maybe never been in. Talk a little bit about perspective of, of the scope in which um, these, these clients that you're working with and what they're dealing with. Sure. If you have a brand that's coming in to sponsor, um, one of the things that we see most often is they fall back to what they know and what they're comfortable with. So the example of American brands, they often fall back to NBA internationally, which may or may not be the right platform for them. They fall back on golfers because it's an international sport or tennis. They they invest in those areas that they know. And that's okay if they need it to be relevant back in the US. But when they go into Asia, you know, they're not really considering badminton. And badminton is huge. <laughs> if you're going into Germany, you can go look at biathlon or handball. And they're just looking and saying golf or NBA a lot of times. So you fall back to what, what you're comfortable with. Um, 
And then you also make the mistake often of thinking that your best practice works around the world. And that's the second biggest mistake that I see is you might have a very refined process in how you do things in your home country. Again, we'll just use the American example. You're having success, you're, you are running a great operation, but that may not work. Take the example of Italian football, just they don't buy jerseys or kits, you know, so they don't show up in the same way that they do in the Premier League or in America. So you're not just buying. You come in and say, look, we can increase merchandising sales. Owners come in and say, we can increase merchandise sales by this. Well, it's not that easy. It's just not part of the culture. And so there's a lot of mistakes where you think your best practices will work internationally. So the, those are the two biggest is falling back on what you know and thinking that your processes will work everywhere. Yeah, it's fascinating. And just to tag on to that, it's the, the fan consumes sports differently in different cultures, right? So talk a little bit about what you've just at least seen with your own eyes in different uh, venues and, and, and cultures themselves about just what sports even means to a culture, you know, in different in different areas, but then also how they consume and, uh, you know, do they follow the brands that uh, you know, you know, are supporting the team and, and vice versa. Yeah, I think the consumption part is interesting, but the, the one that shocks everybody is if you go to a football match and you realize that the beer stands are closed during the game, you know, it's open before it's open at halftime and you can't just go get beer or you can't get on your phone and order beer. And so just the from the business standpoint, people think, oh, my goodness, how can they give up all that revenue? Well, the culture is to watch the 45 minutes on the pitch. It's not necessarily sure. There's always beer around football, but you're doing it and you want to focus on those 45 minutes. Then you have halftime. Go get it. Go get a pint. Um, and so there's just so many little things that weave between the culture of sport and the consumption and the business side of it. And you, you look at it and you go to your best practices and say, well, we should sell beer. Well, you can't. <laughs> and so th th there's a lot of that, but also just the consumption, you know, you look at global football, but even the other, what we would call niche sports of cycling and rugby and cricket and these other things, they are huge. And in particular countries, the consumption on TV, on social media, through your own friend networks and your own WhatsApp groups, et cetera, that happens just the way it does here with NFL and NBA and, and Major League Baseball. So that's all happening. And I would say there's also a little bit more maybe experience in some of those niche sports like cycling, you know a lot of the fans are out there cycling every day. You and I, we might play a flag football game on Thanksgiving, but we're not necessarily going out and playing football every day. Right, right. Well, and you're seeing, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like the National Cycling League, I think, is popping up here in the U.S. or, or launching here soon. So that'll be interesting to see if it if it catches on here. Uh, maybe Maybe some more cyclists on the road, never know. Well, it's, uh, you know, a lot of people say that it's moved from golf to cycling. So <laughs> it's uh, it's the sport where you can go out and spend a couple hours with somebody kind of zoned in and, and you're out and away. And so a lot of people think that cycling has become the new golf. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't, I haven't heard that analogy, but uh, I, I definitely, uh, I love mountain biking. Uh, it's one of those things, again, you kind of, you go with, go with a few people, get in the zone, you, you know, you have to focus, otherwise you're going to, you're going <laughs> to end up on the ground. Um, but uh, all right, as we wrap up the episode here, rapid fire for you, uh, your favorite hometown Pittsburgh team. The Steelers. Easy. <laughs> Wow. You know, I, I figured it might be, but hey, you never know. Um, I love the Pirates, but uh, Steelers are still number one. All right. If you're going to Primanti Brothers, what sandwich are you getting? <laughs> Not a healthy one. <laughs> <laughs> a good answer. So all of the above. <laughs> yes, you can have any, but they're not going to be healthy. Uh, one one restaurant or 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 type of food uh in europe that they don't have in the u.s but you really miss right now well i was living in switzerland and they have it in the u.s but it's not of the same kind and that's just fondue cheese fondue um they have fondue they have melting pot and cheese cellar and all these uh fondue places in the u.s but the cheese isn't the same got it so whenever i go to switzerland gotta get cheese that's yeah. name of the game. Got it. Um, one stadium you've been to that just blew you away, favorite by far. Yeah, I'm biased, but Liverpool, I think, has the best crowd. If you go on a Champions League night, uh, Anfield is just electric. Um, it is just, you know, and I'm a, coming from a Steelers fan, and I thought that was utopia, but uh now you go to Anfield on a good Champions League night and it's something different. And, I, and I've been to a lot of the other Premier League clubs and their stadiums. And I think Anfield's just different and special. You mentioned badminton, uh, rugby, cricket, a bunch of these different sports, right? Handball. What's one sport, again, you followed, you know about culturally, but you never actually seen live that you want to? Ooh. Mm. <laughs> um that's a good question i've been to a lot of them um i'm lucky i was gonna say maybe i'll maybe i'll flip the question on you and go of those that you've been to then what's your favorite anfield <laughs> um, <laughs> anfield definitely is um no you know what's an interesting one which people may not expect is ski jumping it's just such a great atmosphere. You're out in the cold, you're bundled up and, you know, you're sitting there having drinks and, uh, you know, there's a lot of noise and there's cowbells and it's, it's just a unique atmosphere. I don't want to go do it every weekend, but it's a fun atmosphere to go to a ski jumping event. Last one for you. If there's a brand property, you name it, that you want to work with that you haven't yet, what would it be? Augusta, um, the Masters. <laughs> that's the golfer in you there you go there you go david really appreciate uh the perspectives the insights uh sharing your journey uh your experiences abroad and uh how you kind of went about finding your niche and definitely will look to have you on in uh in the near future to tell some more some more stories a lot of fun jake i appreciate you having me thanks a lot Thanks for listening to the Life in the Front Office podcast presented by Suja Organic. Remember, you can get 15% off any one-time pack on shop.sujajuice.com with the code LIFO, L-I-F-O. 
And remember, if you like this episode or you like the Life in the Front Office podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Really appreciate you tuning in and stay tuned for the next one.